Hello and welcome to Origin Story. In each episode, we take a word, idea or figure from history, explain its origins and talk about how it influences political discourse today. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And my name is Ian Dunt. I'm the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't and I'm a columnist for the Eye newspaper. So we hope you've enjoyed the extended third season of Origin Story, where we've had time to dig a bit deeper with two-part episodes. But the final episode is an old-fashioned one-parter about the world's richest man, the ubiquitous alleged genius known as Elon Musk. Ian, this is the first time we focused on an individual who is still alive and active. So the yes. jury is still out. And I think even a year ago before he bought Twitter, this would have been a different story. At the end of 2021, for example, he was Times Person of the Year. Douglas Copeland wrote a piece called In Defense of Elon Musk, just calling him the smartest person in any room anywhere. You know, huh. I think if we'd have done this in like season, we wouldn't have done this in season one, right? To be honest, I, I spent a long time trying to just uh, kind of priding myself on how little I knew about him. He was just sort of one of those peripheral characters. And, I, and if I thought about him at all, I was sort of like, I'm just generally glad when rich people do kind of sci-fi type things because that's what I always got raised to, to think that rich people did not just sit there sort of rent seeking and, and now unfortunately he accounts for a massive amount of the current affairs that I have to consume and has an emotional cost on me because quite a lot of my work life and my social life takes place on a platform which he has managed to destabilize so I'm actually mm. it's hard to think of very many individuals who could affect my life in, to the extent that he yes. has. But on a day-to-day -day basis, he really has done that. So, and there's a BBC documentary called The Elon Musk Show from early 2022, and he's called a real-life superhero. And Oof. they used to call him, there's a biography by Ashley Vance, and on the back it says, The Real Iron Man. Yeah. I don't think anyone would say that now. I think they might say The Red Skull, or they might say <laughs> that perhaps Tony Stark has been replaced by a scroll, or something like that. But it, it's sort of quite a dramatic fall in... in, in in the world's sense of who he is yeah. and what he wants. So this was your idea, this episode. Yeah, I mean, you say that like you're blaming me. I, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Always. I hate other people's ideas. So why? why are we, what did you want to find out about him? It's an interesting question. I'd grown to truly detest him. And there's a part of me that wants to try and put together the pieces of the stuff I heard before the space stuff mm, and the more interesting mm. things with this figure that we see now. And I'm not sure that I've succeeded in doing that in my head. I also just want to see if there's any more sort of, if there's anything we can learn about, not so much then, this kind of figure. He's not alone in it, but he's obviously right. the biggest example, you know, sort of the tech billionaire acts a bit like a human savior. Yeah. If there's anything we can learn, not so much about them, but about us by virtue of how we think of them, you know, do, do they suggest something about like our absence of belief in normal political processes that we're sort of going for this quick fix? Some bloke that comes right. along and goes, fuck it, it's right. We're going to go to Mars. You know, I fixed it all. I think it's the story of the sort of death of Silicon Valley idealism or the death of our credulity mm. about Silicon Valley idealism, the old, you know, don't do evil Google thing. Yeah. Yeah. The original ideas of Facebook and Twitter and sort of bringing people together like never before and and all these kind of this is so this part of this tech revolution since the 90s uh, this utopian streak and i don't know whether it exists anymore if it does exist i don't think people generally unless they've got a blue tick on twitter are buying it yeah there's also a story here of i think of like capitalism and the things that capitalism can do, which are very impressive and useful. Yeah. And then the things that it can do that are tremendously destructive and which rob you of any kind of agency and things that really matter in your life. And this is the first time 
uh, I regret to say that I've been deprived of my beloved OED. Oh, you poor thing. Because the word muskian has yet to enter the dictionary, but I do use it myself sometimes, and it is on Wiktionary, where it says, of or pertaining to Elon Musk. So that's <laughs> great. Um, <laughs> How do you use it? I would... Just really cocking something up. <laughs> no, I sort of define it as like messianic techno-optimism. Mm-hmm. That belief, it's the sort of the Mars side of him. The, the we must all live on Mars side. The, the I want to save the world, which is an enormous part of his mythos. Well, I was reading like a, a 2008 profile in GQ where he's called The Builder. Hmm. And it's just like, you know, sort of love him or hate him. He is just this absolutely extraordinary individual who's going to change the world. And a lot of this stuff reads like, I'm talking about magazine profiles, I'm talking books, up to really the last year or so, reads like propaganda. Yes, it does, yeah. Or, 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 or a kind of, or a cult member's, you know, a, a praised of, to the leader. You know what's hard? It's funny, like, doing a, a living person and doing something this modern, because on the one hand, it's easier, because there's fewer books to read, so you're relying more on sort of articles and on podcasts and on TV yeah, programs. Yeah. On the other hand, it's actually kind of much harder, because what I found was all the material about him... I mean, the, the vast majority of it was done by people who loved him or adored him, even if it was only at the time that they wrote it, right? Uh, they may have changed their minds oh. now. And then the rest of it was this kind of, was this attempt to just sort of destroy him, typically on blogs, yeah, often yeah. by specialists. But it was just, because it was so obviously an attempt to destroy him, you had to take all of that with a pinch of salt as well. So actually trying to find reliable information about his past and arguably his present has proved really quite difficult. We don't have, obviously what you have with Churchill, we had the people who love him, the people who hate him, yeah, the people who are yeah. trying to balance all the information because you've had decades to think about this stuff. Here, you know, I almost upped, I didn't bother, but I almost had to update what I was writing this week because of stuff <laughs> that Musk has said, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. Trying to, you know, wants to sue Mark Zuckerberg for mm-hmm. employing all the people that he fired. Oh, there's um, stuff that we're going to say in this thing, this episode that happened two or three days ago, yeah. which, which for origin story is like it's crazy. leading edge stuff. Yeah. Okay, so in the tradition of origin story... I am going to go back. <laughs> I am going to go back. Because we talk about him in terms of Silicon Valley and the age of the internet. But actually, I think he is tapping into like much older archetypes. So Elon Reeve Musk was born on June 28th, 1971 in Pretoria, South Africa. His maternal grandfather, who's the reason the family was in South Africa. It was a remarkable character named Joshua Norman Haldeman. Born in Minnesota in 1902, he was a chiropractor. His mother was apparently America's first ever chiropractor. Huh. He moved to Canada in his 20s, where as well as becoming a big wheel in uh, chiropractic, became an amateur aviator and an aspiring politician. And he led the Canadian branch of a group called Technocracy Incorporated, a group which believed that the world should be run by an elite of scientists and engineers and wanted the entire North American (laughs) continent to be a post-democratic technate. Uh, Some of the keenest members replaced their names with serial numbers. Hmm. There's a fantastic uh, Matthew Sweet article about about some of this where I got a lot of this information. Anyway, Technocracy Inc. was banned by the Canadian government in 1940 under wartime legislation. It wasn't Nazi, but it was the kind of legislation used against Nazis. And Haldeman resigned after the group allied itself with Stalin against Hitler. Oh, wow. Uh, Militant anti-communist, actually jailed for militant anti-communism. He then chaired the Social Credit Party, a populist party with a record of anti-Semitism. 
After the war, he decided the Canadian state was far too powerful and intrusive and emigrated to that bastion of liberty, South Africa at the dawn of apartheid. <laughs> <laughs> While there, as well as doing the old chiropracting, he took uh, several flights in search of a lost city in the Kalahari Desert and died in a plane crash in 1974 when little Elon was just three. Now, I mention this not just because it's a fun story, mm. but because I do think he is a Muskian figure, this sort of obviously pioneering, risk-taking, very intelligent adventurer who believes that people like him should be in charge rather than democratically elected politicians. And Elon Musk actually hero-worshipped this man. Which would make a lot of sense. Now, Musk's mother, Haldeman's daughter, May, hero-worships Musk. She's a model and dietitian. She's still a model in the Elon Musk show. Oh, fuck, what do you mean? She's, she is right now? Yeah. Oh, wow. She's still, well, she, 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 she sees a model herself on Glenn Close in The Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> Like this very That's a strong look. glamorous, but kind of scary sci-fi aristocrat <laughs> um, who just thinks the sun shines out of his asshole. <laughs> Married an engineer called Errol Musk, who also appears in the documentary and uh, comes across as an absolute danger. Have you seen the documentary? <laughs> no, I haven't. All right. So he just an absolute... N there's no end to what you imagine he might have done. Uh, one thing he admits to very proudly is that he shot dead three men who broke into his house. Fucking hell. Which he was okay. acquitted. Uh, describes exactly how he took them out with just two shots because the gun was so powerful that one shot killed two people. Mm, and great. he's smiling. Mm. Uh, May accused him of domestic violence. Uh, he denies that. He claimed he was once a councilman for the anti-apartheid progressive party, but also said that life in South Africa during apartheid was better and safer. Mm, unsurprising. From his perspective. The whole apartheid issue with Musk's family is very, is sort of very odd because this is a family that thrived socially and financially mm -hmm. under apartheid and claims, oh, no, but we never liked it. Not impossible, but yes. And, you know, and then Errol goes, well, we got on very well with the black housekeepers. And you're like, oh, <laughs> oh I don't know. Okay. I don't know if that's like, you know, I don't think you get an anti-racism award <laughs> for that. Um, Musk's childhood so was was very well off. But say, I mean, they, they, the richness of the family is this sort of baffling level of almost fairy tale sort of story. So there's one point where the dad sort of tells a story about how he gets this emerald mine or half of an emerald mine. Right. And so this sort of bit, all we know is that this is the story that the father tells, you know, whether any of this is true. I mean, presumably not. So basically, like, you know, he's got a plane with a friend. They land somewhere. These Italians come up to them and say, oh, we'll give you 80,000 quid for, for the plane, which at that time was a tremendous amount of money. And so they go off to sort of get it. And he says, oh, would you like to spend, you know, 40 grand of this on half an emerald mine? And he's like, yeah, OK, fine. And he's like, and from that point on, we just had like a lot of emeralds. He was like, you know, we had the safe at home. We could barely close. And now, a lot of that might be bragging, but it still just had this kind of whiff of just the most bizarre form of wealth. You couldn't really put your finger on it. Well, this is ballooned into, uh, into a lot of false claims, I think, that Musk launched himself with his father's uh, apartheid emerald money, which does not seem to be true. For one thing, it was in Zambia, not South Africa. The money does not seem to have come from his father. Snopes did a very good investigation of that. I do love Snopes. Errol himself says they made about $400,000 in today's money. Uh, then it went bust in 1989 and he, huh. he lost his investment. So I think because people hate Musk so much now, they want to make out that like, oh, he was just, he got his, he got his money from his rich daddy's emeralds, which is a good story. Mm -hmm. But. It doesn't hold up. Now, Musk's parents divorced when he was eight, 
and he made the calamitous decision that because May had three kids living with her and Errol had none, he would live with his dad because mm. um, he felt sorry for him. This is what he said about Errol in a Rolling Stone profile uh, from a few years ago. He was such a terrible human being, you have no idea. My dad will have a carefully thought-out plan of evil. Oh, Jesus Christ. And he never really goes into details. He's called his dad evil quite a few times, but he never really goes into details. He obviously gets very emotional talking about it. He suggests that there's all this stuff that he can't say. He certainly doesn't see his dad anymore, mm -hmm. um, even though his dad keeps cropping up in a media capacity sure. to make claims. And, I mean, there's a suggestion of, you know, emotional cruelty or certainly kind mm -hmm. of like a very messed up household environment. And then it's no better when he goes to school, where, because he's born at the end of June, he's the youngest, smallest kid in his year. He's called Muskrat by his schoolmates. He's a bookish know-it-all. Uh, another kid got beaten up just for being friends with him. And we should say that some of these beatings he gets as a kid are quite, I mean, one of them, they sort of knock him down the stairs and, and beat him up at the bottom. He's in hospital for, for a week. I mean, clearly, these are not like minor acts of no. bullying. Like, this is pretty severe stuff. And I have to say, the more you, the more I read about his childhood, I felt genuinely very, very sorry for him. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it sounded absolutely miserable. He actually said he was not raised by his parents. He was raised by books. Mm -hmm. Now, the kind of books are very interesting. So he talks about J.R. Tolkien, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, Douglas Adams. Mm. He said, the heroes of the books I read, the Lord of the Rings and the Foundation series, that's Asimov, always felt a duty to save the world. And so a lot of his companies are littered with these references to Star Wars, Monty Python, yeah. Hitchhikers, yeah. in a kind of quite silly, nerdy yes. way. Yeah. But he seems to have got something quite profound out of that, which, you know, a kind of sense of his, mainly this messianic purpose. And it reminded me of this much older archetype from the, from the very early days of science fiction, that there was a writer called Garrett P. Service, an astronomer and science writer. 1898, he wrote an unlicensed sequel to H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds called Edison's Conquest of Mars, in which Thomas Edison leads Earth's revenge mm -hmm. by uh, conquering Mars. Uh, and there was a whole genre of these in which these sort of Edison-like genius inventors save America and the world from external threats. <laughs> Now, I don't, you know, Musk has never talked about these quite niche, you know, turn of the century stories. But he has been compared to Thomas Edison. Mm -hmm. And part of Thomas Edison's mythos was this sort of fictional version of him. And I found that that in the same way as the Iron Man comparison, that blurring of the real person and the sci-fi world saver yeah. is obviously quite potent in him. I agree. Don't you think there's also a, I mean, look, you've probably written more about sort of the political impact of sci-fi than anyone I know. But like, even so, say during during the Brexit years, I would find that a lot of Remainers, a lot of people who really love the EU were Star Trek kids when they were young. Right. And it was like they grew up with that sense of progress is towards, yeah. you know, essentially the kind of world government and then reaching out to the stars. It was like the values of the media that you can consume at a formative age, especially if that's the only place you've got to go for safety and, you know, for, for your sort of internal world, I think can have like a really pronounced effect on the politics that you have as an adult and indeed on your professional life. And it's interesting, the writers he's drawn to, people like Heinlein and Asimov, were the people that were like, we can colonize the stars. There's an right. amazing interview with Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke uh, with Walter Cronkite on the day that, you know, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. And they're just like, well, this is just the beginning. <laughs> In our lifetimes, we're going to be living on other planets. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. that strand of sci-fi rather than your kind of Ray Bradbury, like <laughs> man is his own worst enemy. <laughs> 
So maybe if Musk had read more Ray Bradbury, it would be a better place. Now, there's a weird thing here is that until he hosted Saturday Night Live in 2021, Musk never said he had Asperger's, had never huh. mentioned autism. But in the documentary, Errol says that kind of this makes sense. So as a kid, he plays... Uh, I mean, it all adds up. There's not a lot of contradictions here in his childhood. <laughs> he plays chess to a high level, builds his own rocket kits, designs a computer game called Blastar when he's 12 and sells that and gets in the press. And by the way, he sells it for $500. Like, I mean, honestly, like, for me as a 12-year-old, yeah, like, yeah. You, you know, that's, it's, I think just in that moment, you can see that this is someone yeah. who might go on to do very impressive things. Also learns martial arts and shoots up. Like He's in height, so he's six foot one. So the bully problem sort of fades away. Right, right. And I read something that he reads biographies of Napoleon and Alexander the Great. Oh, dear. Which is, mm. yeah. Something about like bullied kid reading... <laughs> Napoleon. Reading <laughs> biographies of military <laughs> dictators. So to get to Zip 2, like you mentioned, right? He, he's desperate to live in America. He's claimed, and again, I'm not sure is this mm, such a big factor, he didn't want to be conscripted into a fascist army in South Africa because he opposed apartheid so much. Right. But I don't think there's any question that he did oppose apartheid, right? As you probably would at that age and that, you know. It's yes, not... but it sounds like he basically wanted to go and live in America. Sure, sure. More than anything else. And when he's 17, he moves to Canada because that's where his mother was born um, and he could get citizenship there. Spends a year doing menial jobs before enrolling at Queen's University, where he meets his future wife, Justine, uh, who becomes an author. Finishes his degree in physics and economics at the University of Pennsylvania, then enrolls in a graduate program at Stanford, but drops out after two days to become an internet entrepreneur, because this is 1995, Netscape's just launched, the dot-com boom is starting. Yeah. At this point, that sort of part of it is quite an unremarkable budding entrepreneur story, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a classic dot-com guy. And, and, you know, all this early stuff that you see of like, oh, he goes into this company and it makes shitloads of money. It was the dot-com boom. Right. You know, this is just that there was quite a lot of that going around. And it's quite funny where he started because it wasn't like a, it wasn't really a world-changing idea, was it? It's 24, start Zip2 with his younger brother, Kimball. Mm. It's a city guide website, <laughs> which in modern terms has been described as Google Maps meets Yelp. Right. And it's for local papers. It's, it's really that bit where all the papers are sort of like, Shit, there's this thing called the internet and I've got to come and do something about it. And like, basically where to go and how to get there. Yeah, yeah. Compaq buys that for $307 million. (laughs) What a a time to be alive. Um, And he has 22 million of that goes to him because he's got a 7% share. Yes. So that's, He's already doing quite well. He's doing probably quite considerably better than I was when I was 24 years old, yeah. I'm probably doing better than us now. <laughs> well, almost Despite almost support certainly. from our <laughs> beloved Patreon backers. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe my 7% share in Origin Story will pay off one day. <laughs> and so he's described at that point as very confident, very bright, extremely hardworking, sleeps beside his desk, mm. but also embraceive and impatient and underestimates how long things will take. Which is uh, what we call in the trade foreshadowing. (laughs) (laughs) So he takes the money from that and he basically, one thing you can say about him is he's attracted to industries where innovation is stalled and people go, the barriers to entry are very high, the status quo is very powerful. And that's where he sees an opportunity. So in 1999, he he comes up with an online banking service called x.com. Really quite ambitious. Mm. range of services this merges with confinity owned by peter thiel who has become a different kind of sort of tech supervillain, hasn't he yeah that's about so a different kind of bastard but yeah. yeah let's go with that um this becomes paypal but the paypal service as we know it wasn't musk's idea that came from that's the teal side yeah the teal side and teal 
ousts Musk as CEO over financial losses and lousy decisions. Nevertheless, eBay buys PayPal in 2002 and Musk gets, after taxes, $176 million. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that point, he could have just sort of pissed off and lived on an island somewhere. And what I think is really... Just, you just cannot take away what's impressive about this is that he really does not do that. He gets that money and ends up putting it into two companies. Because then what then happens is he puts that money into Tesla and SpaceX. And I think what is accomplished through those companies by virtue of that is important on it's it's hard not to use the word species you know it's important for the human species that this money is being spent in that way and is being spent very wisely Hello, lovely Patreon people. As you are well aware, we would be completely incapable of doing any of this without your financial support or indeed the great waves of love that you direct in our general direction. And today, I want to say a special thank you to Anita Simons, Lawrence C., Strafford, Neil Champion, and Jeff Dodds. Cheers, guys. Okay, so Ian... Tell us about SpaceX and the birth of the man who would become Space Karen. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you said, you know, that he um, he really hates it when stuff isn't progressing. And the state of sort of space exploration at that point, sort of turn of the century, is just in, in a state of absolute decay. You know, we're decades on from the NASA Apollo sort of mission of, you know, actually branching out there. And really, it's just ended in this sort of endless revolutions around low Earth orbit. There's no real innovation. There's no real change. And his view is that, you know, humanity needs to become a multiplanetary species. What he recognizes is that basically to be a multiplanetary species, you have to reduce the cost of launch, right? So, I mean, to get basically all of this stuff is a, it's a war against mass. You know, every pound you have to spend getting up into orbit is another pound that you don't have in the payload and the stuff that you're trying to get into orbit. So you have, you know, these stages. We talk about first stage, second stage. These are just rockets that are sort of basically attached to each other like Lego, you know, and they have all the fuel and then they, they fall down. If you were to lose a Boeing 747 every time you had to fly it, holidays would cost a million quid. Yeah. Right. So the idea is we need to make these rockets reusable. Yeah. That is the key thing. Yeah. Now, between he pumps the money, about half of the money he gets from PayPal into this business, into SpaceX. He does the classic thing. He works them to the fucking bone. You know what I mean? Like it's like all hours of the day, phone calls at 3 a.m. And there's like a Pacific atoll. Yeah, exactly. Because kind of the, the Air Force kind of get in his way and stop him. So yeah, they just yeah. have to move everything over to this sort of island. It sounds like brutal work, but it also sounds like most of the people that were there who could handle being screamed at by this sort of petulant man child did feel that they were doing something important, you know, for the human race, really. Yeah. And in six years, they go from a bunch of people in a factory to reaching orbit. That's it's four separate launches, three of which fail really badly. Yeah. But actually, there's something quite interesting, even in the way they fail. You know, they have these sort of iterative designs. After spending a lot of time in politics, the, the thing that sort of ministers would always complain to me about, about civil servants, is always the sort of risk aversion that mm. creates these choke points. You know, decisions are always passed by civil servants up to the minister, and they get nervous about even a tiny decision. So eventually, they're just left with all this shit to decide, and the organization moves slowly. The same thing happens in big corporate structures. And I think what you got by having SpaceX just come in, it's just like, no, you're just going to fuck. We're going to fuck shit up now. You know what I mean? We're going to make errors. We're going to make mistakes. Let's just do it's it. It's the startup mentality. Yeah. Uh, you know, at its best, I suppose, in terms of yeah. really just cutting through all of the caution, failing. I mean, it does 
almost collapse. Oh, yeah, he he reaches the... Um, there's one point where they have basically six weeks to get another rocket together and get it into orbit, or the whole thing's over. So if this was a movie... That would be a moment. This is where two... Yeah, this is the moment. But these two narratives converge. So I just want to say a little bit, because at the same time... And this seems like quite a lot to take on. At the same time, yeah. there's Tesla. And a lot of listeners will know that Musk did not found or name Tesla. Mm -hmm. This is often sort of held against him. So these guys, Martin Eberhard and Mark Tuppenning, had an idea for an electric car, the key being uh, the lithium-ion battery. The only electric car uh, that'd be built by a major company, General Motors, had been scrapped because it could only go 75 miles without charging. And they said, well, this lithium-ion battery means <laughs> right. that you could actually fucking <laughs> use it and make it tenable. Um, they needed a lot of money. Musk gave it to them, became the largest shareholder and chairman, uh, eventually forced out Eberhard mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and becomes the face of Tesla. Now, he's framed this as his response to the climate crisis. He's always talking. He's very into existential risk, right? Of all yeah, kinds. Yeah. Climate change is the biggest threat that humanity faces this century, except for AI. We will get to that. And he says, the fundamental intention of Tesla, at least my motivation, was to accelerate the advent of sustainable energy. And again, like if you forget what we know about him now and you go back then, you just go, well, this seems kind of rather wonderful that you're mm. pouring tens of millions of dollars into a company because you believe in green energy and reducing fossil fuel consumption and, and making an electric car viable. What happens, though, is every model that Tesla announces is delayed. By the end of 2008, when all this is going wrong with SpaceX, Tesla is a day away from bankruptcy. Mm. Musk has also just gone through a divorce yeah. from Justine. It's not, it's sort of, it's not like boo-hoo, I'll pour it. No, it's no. like, you know, he was, he was a bastard, basically. Well, he, in, in the, like, yeah. he, he broke up with her. Yeah. yeah. But the woman who becomes his second wife, the actress Tallulah Riley, thought that Musk would have a heart attack when he was waking mm -hmm. up in the night, mm -hmm. screaming and so on. He himself said, I felt like a pile of shit. I didn't think we would overcome it. I thought things were probably fucking doomed. <laughs> and he's saved by last minute, you know, financing and loans and stuff. At the same time, pretty much, as this fourth rocket actually works. Mm. And again, if we're trying to be nice about Elon Musk, one of the things that a lot of people say is that he has this incredibly high pain threshold and appetite for risk, where a lot of people would just be like, I am a very rich man and I'm going to lose every single cent that I have yes. on this thing that has failed. And I'm going to be held up as an example of, you know, folly. And you've still got the kind of skeptics or haters as he would see them when he when he floats Tesla on the Nasdaq in 2010. Most pundits assume that it was doomed. Raises the necessary money. You know, I don't think it's like a, a complete triumph, but does raise the necessary the money to keep it again. Then in 2012, Tesla's in such dire straits that he almost sells it to Google <laughs> and again survives. And I think the next year, one of their, you know, big models comes out, the, you know, the most commercial the model, right. model S. So there's quite a lot of serious jeopardy, serious crunch points. It's not like you're out of the woods and, and, then, and then you're away. It keeps happening. The effect is remarkable because, I mean, the effect of Tesla is not just the cars themselves. I think it's what it does to the image of electric cars. Right. right. So, you know, I, I sort of think in a way, you remember when we were talking about the thing of like, you know, Reagan versus Corbyn or whatever, of, of you know, this idea of like environmentalism and sort of lefty ethics. And it's always that sort of sense of like, oh, you're ethical, but you're just not having any fun. You know what I mean? Like you're vegan and you've got hemp trousers and the blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah. But actually, you know, the thing with Tesla was just coming around and being like, well, actually, this stuff can be sexy and rich and glamorous and, and all of that kind of stuff. And maybe culturally, that was the jolt that was needed rather than the sort of hand wringing, yeah. you know, guardian reading teacher 
nature worrying over his herbal tea. And makes other companies want to make their own. Exactly. Shows Which that they they're viable do. and also commercial. And, and now, as far as I understand, I think every car company makes electric vehicles or is in the process of doing so. What is accomplished with the reusability of rockets is like utterly extraordinary. What you really want to do is just be able to bring it straight down so you don't have to use that extra fuel mm. for the return flight. And what they've ended up doing for that is just having these automated drone ships, which can track and then pick up the rocket as it falls, the, the, the first stage rocket as it falls. Now, this if you look at the videos of that, it is like watching something out of a movie. It's the first time, I think, with space stuff that it feels like you're seeing something really fundamentally and ferociously new. You know, something that you wouldn't have considered possible before. So this is the science writer Eric Berger. It was one of the most jaw-dropping things that I've ever seen. For the first time in my life, I felt as though I had seen something as cool as my parents had witnessed during the Apollo moon landing in 1969. Well, let's talk a bit about his image. So around 2008, like you said, pretty hairy time business-wise. But the press loves him. And Robert Downey Jr. toured SpaceX while he was making Iron Man and made sure there was a Tesla Roadster, which was the first model, mm, in yeah. Stark's workshop. While promoting the movie, Downey and director John Favreau talked up the Musk influence, even though Stark is nothing like Musk. No. Like he's a very charming, glib, sort of playboy. Right. Nothing, nothing like him at all. This leads to Musk cameoing as himself in Iron Man 2 and years of profiles calling him the real Iron Man. Here's something from 2012 book called The Startup Playbook, which interviewed dozens of tech entrepreneurs in a rather sycophantic manner. Right. It says, Elon Musk's focus is clear, and it's nothing less than securing the future of humanity itself. At an early age, Elon identified three areas that he believed were particularly important to solving the world's most pressing challenges. The internet, sustainable energy, and extending human life to other planets. <laughs> and this is kind of, you know, you see this at the GQ profile, 2008, his first New Yorker profile, 2009. You know, it is like, who is this wonderful weirdo yeah. who wants to save the world? And this sustains itself for quite a while. And yet, sort of behind the scenes, you're sort of seeing maybe the cost on, on employees. One employee says, working at Tesla back then was like being Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. Don't worry about the methods or if they're unsound. Just get the job done. <laughs> I don't know if he's seen Apocalypse Now, because that's not quite the point of the Kurtz character. <laughs> I'm just trying to put it together. Yeah, just so get the job done. Make the wall of human skulls. Because what we find about Musk is he has these very limited people skills. Like there's all these stories, aren't there, of him like sure. job interviewing and you, you know they're you, weird. He as doesn't part, seem yeah. to know that you're in the room, and they'll suddenly throw a question at you, just mm -hmm. like, "How would you, how would you turn the moon into a hat?" And they're just like, "I don't, I don't know." Very high staff turnover, and this almost sadomasochistic relationship they get to the employees is that people either leave or they sort of join the cult, and they love him because they believe in him. And some of the stuff you're reading about here is just classic asshole boss behavior. Yes, exactly. Bollocking yeah. someone for missing work uh, for the trivial matter of attending the birth of his child. No, deliberately calling people on weekends mm. to make them feel bad for not working weekends. It's like, it's interesting, his ambitions are very unusual. But his behavior a lot of the time is just, I'm working 18 hours a day and you're going to work 18 hours a day mm -hmm. and just being a dick about it. It's just part of that dreadful fucking thing that you see of the, the machismo of, of, of work, 
are basically like, you can only make great films if everyone's traumatized by the end of it. You know, yeah, yeah, gonna, yeah. It's, it's, it's just nonsense. Like you can be nice to people and have decent working hours that people can fit in around family and still do exceptional pieces of work in any area of life. It does, life right. does not have to be this way. And typically the people who try to make it that way, it's not really because it's more efficient because I don't think it is. I think it's just because it corresponds to their own mental defects. This is also from the startup playbook. This is Musk himself. And this does explain about how he kind of like a problem with very intelligent people. Because I find it remarkable that I can explain the reality of a situation to people and still not change their point of view. The facts are very plain and the reasoning is very clear, but they still won't agree with the conclusion. It's crazy. (laughs) And you think, okay, right. It's, it's, It's him believing that this thing can be done, which enables Tesla and SpaceX to succeed. But if you just apply that as almost a general rule of life, like I'm explaining how things objectively are mm. and you seem to have a different opinion perhaps you're mentally ill like that appears to be his <laughs> which means that when he's vindicated people go well wonderful as is always the case but because he succeeds people go well i guess that's what it takes mm-hmm. and it's like i don't know man maybe you could just let that guy attend the birth of his child <laughs> and you would still have made a success of the model s you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. Just going to take a breath to thank our supporters over on Patreon, whose backing enables us to continue to research, write, and present this series. Thank you to Vic, Ben Price, Robert Levac, Belinda Scott, and Loz Pycock. To find out more about becoming a supporter of Origin Story and receiving exclusive content, click on the link in our show notes. I want to just talk a bit about the business function of how he operates, the celebrity that he sort of brings. It's not just Iron Man 2, right? It's sort of Machete Kills, The Big Bang Theory, Rick and Morty. He becomes almost like a meme uh, before he becomes a full celebrity. I mean, that's not just sort of riding the wave or it's actually part of a business strategy. Like Tesla spends next to nothing on advertising or on brand development. Why? Because they don't have to. I mean, that kind of company would spend millions on this kind of thing. But they don't have to because they got him. Right? And he uses it, that's the way that he used Twitter for a very long time. But it's also the way he just used his form of celebrity. And then how does he put himself out there? It's as, yes, the nerd machismo, but also the sort of scientific genius, this kind of superhuman intellect, which allows him to understand sort of anything at any time. So this, if you were to believe, and this is this is the period where we start having to call bullshit, essentially, mm. on what he says. Mm. And I'm, I'll go into details in a moment of where we know he's talking bullshit. If you were to believe what he says, he is quite literally a brain surgeon and a rocket scientist at the same time, yeah. on the same days, as well as being a top engineer and a political theorist. And the rest of the time, he's sort of tweeting. And you're like, well, okay, so that's one version of events. So he will say on, on Tesla manufacturing, the way he makes himself out in, on Tesla is like he's just there on the floor. He's just there on the factory Well, he says, floor. I'm not really a businessman. I'm a technologist. He wants you to believe that he's doing everything. He's, so he says, I mean, I make the spending decisions and the engineering decisions in one head. Normally, these are at least two people. But I'm making the engineering decisions and the spending decisions. Right. When are you really? He's on Twitter a lot. And as someone who's on Twitter a lot, I know that it does cut into the time that you have available for spending and engineering decisions. (laughs) 
on which I'm really behind on both of those. It's always plagued you. So he says on Tesla manufacturing, there were choke points in the entire production system. That's why I'm running around the production line, trying to fix the production line. I'm looking at this beam and I'm thinking, what the hell does that do? The production team said that's for crash safety. It turned out to be totally useless. So he's really like this sort of just this genius level intellect who can fix all of your problems. I want to keep that in mind because I think ultimately what he then becomes and the mm-hmm. image he has politically, it's essential that you don't see him just as a guy who made really risky, really smart sort of investments, not just as a guy who had foresight with companies who actually could get stuff done with those companies and not even just a guy with like a shitload of capital behind him, but this kind of almost superheroic genius who does have the capacity to save the planet. Now things start to get very weird. <laughs> I would say in 2018, right? Because SpaceX and Tesla have both defied the naysayers. Musk has become a celebrity. He's riding high. And then like a bunch of things happen that that put him in the new, make him the story. Not all of these are bad things, but they make him the story. So one, he starts dating Grimes, the, the, the pop star, has two children. He's already got five children with Justine. Um, so this is uh, lucky number seven. Then he smokes weed on Joe Rogan's podcast, which causes Tesla stock to plunge. I thought he was a weed smoker. He isn't. He just kind of looks a bit surprised and goes, I'll give it a go. Mm. But because you're, if, you're, if you are Tesla, then if you smoke weed in a podcast, the stock goes down. Well, your press office yeah. basically just smoked a blunt. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah I know, like, right? That's what's happened. Two, you've really got to whiz through this stuff because it's actually so much, right? Just from the one year. His, his plan to rescue Thai teenagers from an underwater cave is slammed by a professional cave diver who does actually rescue them. Musk uh, then calls him a pedo guy. Yeah. Gets sued. Actually wins the suit because mm. apparently it's not libel. It's just abuse. <laughs> but that made him look very, very weird. He stokes his fans to mob a journalist who criticized him in an article. He's already got very, very hostile, even attacking like Ashley Vance, who wrote the really rather positive biography yeah, of him. Yeah. So he's lear- he really begins to hate the media. Uh, most importantly, he tweets a stupid joke about taking Tesla private on 20th of April, 420, which is a weed reference, which for a man who we've just established doesn't really smoke weed. Mm. It's like, well, what's the fucking point? Like, if, you, if it was Be Real from Cypress Hill, I'd go, oh, <laughs> fair enough. This is obviously one of your interests. <laughs> so this then boosts the share price because people think, oh, he's going to take it private. Leaves him stepping down as chairman. Both he and Tesla separately have to pay $20 million fines to the Securities and Exchange Commission. Yeah, God. So this is very, very, like, it's just super erratic. It's just a jumble of very, very erratic decisions, none of which stops him because of Tesla stock um, when he's not smoking weed, becoming the world's richest man for the first time in January 2021, then manages to get, he's in the Guinness Book of Records or the Guinness website of records, whatever the kids Mm -hmm. call it these days, Mm -hmm. for the largest loss of a personal fortune in history because it went down 200 billion in 2022. But then it came back again and made him the richest man in the world again in 2023. So his wealth, which is virtually all or the vast majority is from Tesla stock. Yeah, yeah. He has no proper liquidity. Right. And he doesn't seem, and again, to be fair to the guy, he doesn't seem that interested in money per se. The choices he's made have not necess- have not been your regular rich guy no, choices. No, I think that's fair. He yeah. does throw it back into the company. He doesn't seem to live a particularly luxurious life. I mean, he he's, not, he's not taking, he's not taking the fucking bus, is he? Right. But he doesn't seem to be one of those people that's constantly trying to accumulate like, um, you know, super yachts and yeah, yeah, yeah. paintings yeah. and so on. 
But finally, around this period, we start to see the evidence of the bullshit. Yeah. Because until now, the SpaceX and Tesla stuff, you know, it's just like, well, this guy really does have a vision. He really can do it. Yeah. But then it starts coming out. So, I mean, there's this extraordinary moment in 2016 about a company called SolarCity. And he's trying to basically have a multi-billion acquisition of SolarCity. It's a company that's co-founded by his cousins. (laughs) And he needs to sort of sell shareholders on the merger. But SolarCity's sort of... It's, it's got somewhere with the beginning of this project of, of basically trying to make sort of solar panels on roofs more attractive. Yeah, you know, as you yeah. can tell, they're, they're a pretty ugly site. And they have a sort of one sheet metal thing that can do it instead, but it's not particularly beautiful. So they're thinking, oh, what if we can find something else? He suddenly starts talking on August the 9th. This is an interesting thing for how he uses his celebrity as part of a business strategy, not just in his own right. Starts telling uh, on an earnings call for SolarCity. He's got this beautiful roof product that will soon be unveiled. There's a huge market for it. And then you get this press conference. The press conference is fucking insane. You can watch it on YouTube. It's on the set of Desperate Housewives. And he's like, you see these houses around you. If I can give you the quote, the quote's important. All the houses you see around you are all solar houses. Did you notice? It's because the tiles, and they've got different tiles in all the houses, Mm. are all these sort of solar cells that are just getting energy. But they look like normal sort of tiles, which is kind of what you're looking for, like to make it environmentally good, but also to make it beautiful in its own right. And he holds up one of these tiles, and he says, look, and he holds it up to the camera, he says, if you look carefully, you can see the solar cells. He talks about how all of these tiles are going to be, they're like snowflakes, they're all different to each other. It's all complete bullshit. Like, None of this is actually true. And this has been acknowledged by the company that the demos must come veiled at Universal Studios were not functional. Like that it was not a working prototype. It's a bit Theranos, isn't it? It's, it's also just like, you're like, oh, wait, so that's just straight up, straight up bullshit, right? right? I mean, so the promises that they made, he made in 2016, he said it's about to be widely rolled out. It turns out it's really hard to put stuff on roofs. So by 2019, three years later, he's saying it's going to be the year of the solar roof, sets a goal for 1,000 a week. In 2023, according to NBC, Tesla has only installed 3,000 of those roof systems in the whole of the US. And this is actually part and parcel of a broader trend you see with him of these sort of constant promises for driverless cars or for this or that. It's the hyperloop system he's always talking about. Right, exactly, exactly that. Let me give you another example. This is called Neuralink. And I find this one a bit more pernicious, actually. So this is created in 2016. It had capital from Teal and and from Musk. It was a real company. It was run by decent researchers. It had a strong publication background. Then Musk comes in and suddenly the claims balloon and the work itself seems to sort of disintegrate. Now, there's a presentation in 2020, which, again, is just extraordinary. He's there. He puts up this slide with all these words on it. Depression, anxiety, addiction, insomnia, blindness, memory loss. And it says, well, basically what we're going to do is we're going to get this chip and we're going to put it inside of your skull and we'll basically be able to figure out all of these problems. So just take out a slice of skull, insert this chip in there, which can be sort of recharged every night. He calls it a Fitbit for your skull. I mean, for for listeners who cannot see, Dorian's face has just sort of collapsed into into suspicion. Can you imagine, though? (laughs) You know, one of the points that's being made is that seeing how he runs Twitter suddenly makes you just think, I'm not sure how good he is with the other things. Seeing how he runs Twitter (laughs) makes me not want him to cut open my skull and put a chip in it. This is what gets me, right? Like, to claim, to give people hope in this, like, for depression. We 
don't know what the fuck. Like, it's not, we, no. we're nowhere near being able to. He says, an implantable device can actually solve these problems. A lot of people don't actually realize this. But <laughs> well, I have science. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Those fools. These can all be solved with an implantable Neuralink. You need an electronic thing to solve an electronic problem. <laughs> just think, like, that is what? just batshit. What you're saying is mad. And, and to be honest, from that point, he veers off into ever more bizarre territory. So he's sort of talking like it's the Matrix, like you can just zap, you know, the knowledge of Kung Fu into someone's head, get rid of any kind of fear when they go rock climbing, discover the nature of consciousness, see radar with superhuman vision. MIT's technology review calls this neuroscience theater, which right. is essentially what it is. They're just like you, you are nowhere near being able to do Anything, I and mean, just even the corrosive effects of that thing on the brain would be extraordinary, let alone how you try and heat an object that's actually touching the human brain at any given moment, let alone the science behind what they're proposing. They didn't have any plans for a clinical trial. And then he suddenly says something quite interesting. He keeps on trying, whenever they ask him about the medicine on the Neuralink stuff, he veers away and he starts talking in this much more futuristic way about, quote, a general population device. Again, your face is doing that scrunched up scrutiny thing, which he calls, he says, this is the company's overall aim. It says, on a this is an extraordinary quote. On a species level, it's important to figure out how we coexist with advanced AI, achieving some AI symbiosis, such that the future of the world is controlled by the combined will of the people of the earth. That might be the most important thing that a device like this achieves. But he just keeps making more and more claims, <laughs> sometimes contradictory. So he gets really into, he gets obsessed, reads a book called Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom, gets obsessed with the dangers of unaligned AI, tweeted it's potentially more dangerous than nukes and sets up this nonprofit, Open AI. Now, we might actually end up doing a, an episode at some point, mm -hmm. a mini episode on like long-termism, effective altruism, that whole movie. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, He's great. kind of involved in in all of that. But it's quite interesting that people are very excited by the sci-fi problems. Mm. William McCaskill, who's the leading effective altruist, tells a great story about appearing with Musk on a panel about AI and trying to get him talking about issues, you know, affected people today. Because I tried to get him talking for five minutes about global poverty and got little interest. Right, right. And that's interesting. Remember yeah. that he was like, you know, climate change, climate change. Now, He's saying population collapse due to low birth rates is a much bigger risk to civilization than global warming. Mm. And in the past, this is actually something he said years ago, but maybe was not picked up on so much. He said it was the duty of the educated to reproduce. Quote, so we don't devolve into a not very literate, theocratic and unenlightened feature. And he encouraged employees to have on average 2.1 children Ooh, per woman. Yeah. So it's very sort of like, Sort of low-level eugenics. Mm. And it's just important to note that he recently said that only people that have had kids should be able to vote. Right. So this is another... So he, he can't stop because the whole point was like, it's a very impressive to do um, SpaceX and Tesla at the same time. Right. Let alone the... And then the but the, the solar city, like, not as impressive as... You know, <laughs> what, the fake tiles haven't impressed fake you tiles. that much. And, but then all this other stuff. And it's like, well, hang on, what are you trying to do? Like, underground transportation in a tube, but also a brain chip. Mm. And and it just seems like he doesn't know, he can't pick a lane because he succeeded by not picking a lane. So he just thinks, well, I can do anything. Yeah. And yeah. so his politics, now I think we pretty much understand where he's coming from. But in 2020, right, he had, he had criticized, he'd walked off a, uh, he'd resigned from a panel on climate change, Committee on Climate Change, because of Trump's 
dialing back uh, America's commitments, right? right? So you think, oh, okay, right. Okay, sort of centrist, green-leaning, whatever. 2020, he endorsed Andrew Yang. Do you remember him? Yeah, yeah, Maverick no, I remember centrist him yeah. in the Democratic primary. Tweeted his support for Kanye West's presidential bid. <laughs> then says he voted for Biden. By 2022, he's endorsing Republicans in the midterms because he says he thinks it's good to have a balance with the Democrat in the White House. Mm. Then says, actually, the Democrats are the party of division and hate. Which, by the way, incredible. An incredible claim in <laughs> <Yeah>. this. <laughs> no, those guys. Those Jane are the guys that trade you know. in division. And then also you realize that, that, like, in some ways, he's quite obvious. He's like, I do think he's a classic sort of libertarian narcissist. He doesn't want, he doesn't like the state even though SpaceX wouldn't exist without billion-dollar government contracts. That was what kind of saved it. Yes, that's true. Um, it's NASA contracts, yeah. Doesn't actually like shareholders. Says he hates the fact that Tesla is publicly traded, even though that's where he gets his fortune from. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really want to have to listen to what shareholders want. Yeah. Or employees, or anyone, which is why he's anti-union mm -hmm. as well. So in some ways, quite sort of conventional yes. right-wing, don't tell me what to do. From the startup playbook again, this is what he says about unions and why you don't really need them. <laughs> so I, I, once, I once asked the factory technicians on the floor what they saw as the best value of unions. They said that if their boss was a jerk, they had no recourse, but the union gave them a recourse. So I made the rule. There will be no jerks here. <laughs> <laughs> Bear in mind that he himself is famously a jerk. Oh, as a my bot. God. Wow. And he's like, well, why would you need unions? Because I've just banished all the... Uh, all the jerks Banished all the jerks. Yeah. Politically, he's also... So he's, he's hosted Ron DeSantis' campaign launch on Twitter, but also endorsed Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in the Democratic primaries. He's sort of more pro-Trump now. I mean, I don't know how much we have to tell. I made actually a long list of just like crazy stuff that he has been saying on Twitter, like very, very right-wing stuff. And quite conspiracy theorist stuff as well. Right, right. I mean, literally pushing conspiracy theories about like psyops and false flags. And I mean, all some of, that. of the stuff he's done morally has just been abysmal. And, and then even you know, in terms of the disinformation, morally, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 you just sort of think, how could you be a person who would even write these words? And then when you look at COVID, you know, I mean, even. He was wrong about COVID all the way through. He was constantly saying, and the classic sort of COVID denialism stuff, it's yeah, just yeah. a common cold and it will all go away and blah, blah, blah. But then even years into it, when they start reopening, you know, factories, he basically writes to his workers and says, you know, if you, if you don't go in against the law yeah. at that period, then we're going to take away, you know, your, your pay, your, you're not going to be entitled to, to sort of unemployment benefit. It just, it was really, really great. It's the sort of stuff it's easy to go over. But if you happen to be that person being employed at that moment, that was going to absolutely fucking suck for you. Well, he has also called for Anthony Fauci to be prosecuted. Yeah. Um, spread conspiracy theories about George Soros. Yeah, it's the classic anti-Semitic sort of trope. And there's a couple of personal issues here. It's he, he's really gone very hard on trans people. In fact, LGBTQ people in mm -hmm. general. It's not mm -hmm. exclusive to trans people. Instantly, one of his children is a trans woman who is estranged mm -hmm. from him and has changed her surname. Now, I don't, we don't know anything more about that. But that seems like a very strange thing to do yes another thing came out in discovery when he was trying to avoid buying twitter and then had to yeah, yeah. that Tallulah riley his ex-wife he actually married twice yes well they divorced twice didn't they yeah Bernie texted him please do something to fight wokeism around the time that he's buying twitter so something has happened to him politically where he's not just your typical like 
Republican. He was like independent registered, donated to both parties like rich people generally tend to because yeah. it suits their purposes. He was never like left wing. But in some ways, just as a conventional right wing industrialist. And then he's gone all in on this mad jumble of sort of culture war stuff. And when we did the culture war episode, we said the definition of culture war is all these things have nothing to do with each other. But he's into all of this stuff at the same time. So something has happened to his brain. Ultimately, this is a, this is a story about basic radicalization, right? And you look at the people he's on Twitter. Look at who he is. He's on Twitter and, and what, you know, the way he was described in Decoding the Gurus. No, actually, they might have taken it from a magazine, but it was a very good podcast on him. When they just said, look, he's, he's basically like a, a far right reply guy on Twitter. Mm. Like he's the guy replying to people like Ian Miles Chung and Mike Cernovich. And Cat Turd too. Right. These are like, you know, if you don't know who these people are, you've made great life choices, right? Because, I mean, if you just go look at those feeds, these people are just churning out like the most banal idiot level proto-fascist guff mm -hmm. you know and then he's just popping up in the replies Going, being like oh wow that's crazy i've never th you know interesting Inter yeah you're just like what the fuck like this is how you spend your time this is what the, the great genius superhuman intellect of the world is with these guys like so we briefly say in the non-political thing of what went on with twitter because i mean just in terms of again the, the genius thing it's just like, this is not genius behavior, what he has engaged in, just operationally, you know, just just in terms of business. Yeah. Like, so he, he offers at 44 billion for Twitter, which is which seemed mad at the time. But I mean, it was before the Fed hiked interest rates, which then depressed the stock values. I think it was also just this sort of bribe, just to prize mm -hmm. it away. And also maybe just this kind of macho chaos engine sort of stuff that he likes to throw out there, like the 420 with Tesla. He has to borrow. He can't again. This is the liquidity problem, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So he can't. He can't just start dumping Tesla stock at this at this scale because if he does, it's just going to trigger a, a dive. So he's got to borrow, and if he borrows, he's got to service the debt mm. at this level, which is quite quite a fucking thing to service, you know. It's an amazing yeah. amount of money, forty four billion. This is Twitter. crazy, just crazy. So this is a guy with you know half of one hundred and seventy five million could do Tesla and SpaceX, and now he's just spaffing forty four billion to destroy a social media network. He sacks staff, he eradicates moderation, he closes the press office, he spreads conspiracy theories, and then, surprise, surprise, high-quality advertisers pull out. Yeah. I mean, this is all well litigated at the moment, but it's, it's worth sort of going through the narrative of it. Because, you know, the, the problem is then, he's just like, well, so how are you going to service the debt, right? Where's the revenue coming from? The revenue is falling, so he replaces high-quality ads with low-budget ones. Awful ones. Which is why, yeah, where it went from... You know, cars and trainers. And Barredo was just like, oh, would you like this sort of T-shirt that looks like it costs $5 to, to make? And here's this one weird trick kind of advertising. Mm. It basically suddenly started to look like the pages of a local newspaper that had been bought by a massive corporate, by local world, you know? And then they're like, oh, here it is. Here's a special recipe to lose all your weight in five weeks. And it took the blue check from, you know, power users and gave it to basically sort of an army of sycophants. It sort of financially didn't make sense because you need it to be... Again, none, none of his none of his choices make sense mm. because you go, well, if you're going to make the paid for blue check financially viable and bring in serious amounts of cash, you would have to make it very, very appealing. And what he actually did was just like, get one if you really like Cat Turd 2, <laughs> you know, and then was a real dick to like the celebrities that drive the popularity of the platform. Yes. And so loads of people were like, oh, no, if I even if I want the extra features with the blue tick, I don't want to look like... I like Elon Musk. So he made it, turned it into a referendum on him 
the results of which prove that people hate him. <laughs> the man who, world-saving Tony Stark, superhero man, mm. has in the space of a year become somebody that you would be embarrassed to think that you liked. I mean, he sacks 75% of the staff. He says the most dreadful things about them as they're going. Oh, yeah. And some people he targets specifically mm. and says the most awful things. He overfires. He hires some of them back. Others go off and just sort of, you know, basically just go join Meta and set up Threads, which is now the biggest competitor yeah, to yeah. him. You know, it, the service cannot run on that degree of stuffing. It starts to glitch to the point... When we're recording now, I think we're almost at that precipice point where people have completely lost patience on the technical yeah. side of things, on, on it sort of starting to work. And you just think, what have you done? Like, if, if there was ever any notion remaining of you being this super genius, yeah. it's surely gone now. Like, you know, just putting aside any of the morality or the politics of how you've engaged yourself, this has been an object lesson in what not to do professionally. Obviously, his his reputation has sort of collapsed and the other things that maybe people didn't bother about before have come to the fore like Forbes has given him a philanthropy score of one he donates less than one percent <laughs> of his wealth now maybe people weren't bothered by that before maybe people weren't noticing Steve Jobs was famously very tight huh. but as long as you're doing the brilliant thing people go oh, okay now the best article I've read about him recently is called Burning Down the House by David J. Roth which sums him up as what's happened to his public image. He goes, for all of Musk's luridly corny extravagances, he has always been defined by his deficits. He wants very much to be funny, but manifestly is not. He wants to be seen as brilliant and heterodox and fearless, but he has the opinions and tastes and politics of a very rich middle-aged man who isn't especially curious or literate. Mm. He sees himself or sells himself as a visionary and a pioneer, but has revealed himself to be a classically cretinous capitalist. <laughs> Musk's vision for humanity is grandiose and obscure. His impulse to stump on anyone unlucky to find themselves working under him has always been more clearly and shamelessly expressed. Now, I think when he goes has always been, I think it's actually a bit unfair I think he's making claims about his sort of, you know, in intelligence or sincerity and so on. And so what that made me think, it's the question we'll ask is like, I love the line. Someone described him just as a brilliant little sort of deadpan drive by as former genius Elon Musk. <laughs> now, some people want to go back. I think this is what happens when it's like when a celebrity does something very problematic and people go back. Oh, I never liked them anyway. Right, right. You know, you want to trash everything they've ever done. Now, does this mean that he was never a genius, that he, he never had this kind of sincere, you know, idealism about the future of humanity, that he never had this genuine, you know, courage and adventuring spirit? Or does it mean that, that he had those things, but they went horribly sour in the way that he kept reminding me while doing this of Kanye West as these outsiders that want to change everything. They, they, struggle to get respect, they endure all these setbacks, they prove the doubters wrong, they become very successful and actually transform the whole game. But then on the way, they learn to consider all criticism and even advice as just haters. Yeah. So they get out of their depth and they can't pull back and they won't listen. And the only people that are kind of really rooting for them are on the crank right. So they completely soil their reputations. And yeah. I just thought, no wonder there's an affinity between these two people. So what I'm wondering is, does this taint everything? Does this make you think all along, actually, maybe there was a lot of smoke and mirrors here and people were mugs to fall for it? Or do you think that something has 
really happened. In, in, you know, something has happened to his brain, certainly since 2018, but particularly in the last couple of years. And so I think both are true, right? So if you look at the way that uh, what happens to him in SpaceX and Tesla, it's smart guy, great investment, genuinely sort of forward-looking ambitions that are quite rare among business people and manages to achieve it, right? So that's all it has to be. He then tries to sell that as this much greater sort mm -hmm. of example of this of kind of like Lex Luthor, but Lex Luthor combined with Superman, yeah, basically. Yeah. And that's not what he ever was. And there was no basis upon which to believe that he was ever doing that kind of engineering work at, at Tesla and SpaceX. So that part is just sort of like, he never was that guy. He doesn't have to be for those achievements to have been impressive anyway right. as they were. And then he goes from that to the radicalized far right version that you now see on Twitter. And that just seems to me to be a kind of meat and potatoes online radicalization story. That's what it looks like. Well, that seems to undermine all of these bigger claims. So whether or not it affects whether people want to buy a, a Tesla, it's probably not going to affect whether you want to use a SpaceX rocket because it's much cheaper, you know. <laughs> but if your whole thing is like, I want to change the world, I'm very concerned about humanity, trust me to elevate us to the stars. And then you look at this guy, the guy on Twitter, and surely that all crumbles because it's like, oh, my God, I do not trust you yeah. on any of this. And that seems to be what he's what he's destroyed, what nobody would now would nobody would write those profiles and those blurbs that we've that we've been quoting throughout the show, because it would seem it would seem absurd because he's been proven to be a kind of vindictive bully, quite ignorant. Everyone thought he just, he reads so much. You know that myth of the businessman? Mm. And they, he's always reading. He reads read five hours a day. He can read like a book in yeah. a minute and just throw yeah. it over his shoulder and then read another book. And then you you you, you see his, how he understands principles of free speech or even the legality of free speech. He doesn't have a fucking clue. Like he literally doesn't understand that like the First Amendment does not apply to the entire world and, and things like that. And so he's revealed all this stuff that I think he'd managed to conceal behind this, this image and not to say there was nothing there but i think there were a lot of flaws there that people just went either didn't notice uh they thought he was more intelligent than he was or more knowledgeable than he is or they just didn't mind and they go well he's a difficult boss but right and now all this stuff is coming up and it's like oh he treats people like shit oh he hardly donates any of his money mm. oh he spreads you know far right conspiracy theories like all of these things together and they're not you know, he's still a very rich man. He's the richest man at the time of recording. <laughs> but I wonder where he goes from here apart from Tesla money. I wonder how much people are going to trust him on mm -hmm. this messianic vision. You know, because messiahs, if messiahs turn around and start just being real assholes, Jesus started just taking the piss out of everyone <laughs> around him. It's like your pedo. Yeah, so called people pedo. And they're just like, oh, this is, I don't know whether we want to follow Jesus anymore. <laughs> So I, I don't know what his future is. I have a, I, I think there's like a couple of things to conclude from it. The first one is, it's a really interesting story about capitalism. Because honestly, you look at that SpaceX stuff, that's capitalism that can do that. Yeah. Those materials are being made in-house, they're reducing prices, and the state benefits, right? Like the state is able to now launch much more cheaply, infinitely more cheaply than it was able to do previously because of capitalist innovation. It wouldn't have happened if just NASA was doing it on its own. It wasn't happening from big companies either. It needed that kind of the rough and tumble of capitalism. And yet, then you get to the Twitter moment. And I've got to say, like, 
it kind of makes a pretty good case for why some of this stuff should be under public ownership because yeah. you're like this has real social utility it's crucially important to our lives i mean we all basically just had like a presidency run through twitter you know it's become this central node of information exchange and if this guy can just walk in and just fucking set fire to everything in one go you think well this just doesn't have the degree of stability and transparency on decision making and democracy around the decision making that you would wish for so it's sort of it, it's a kind of weird story for capitalism one in which it emerges quite wet at the beginning and quite dangerously at the end. It's sort of narratively perfect in a way that as we've seen this decline in public faith in the Silicon Valley Titans and you even see it in tech journalism, which used to just be essentially like advertising yeah. a lot yeah. of the time, has become a lot more skeptical. And for that to actually take place on Twitter, which he owns, <laughs> which perhaps epitomizes <laughs> our sense of like undelivered promises mm -hmm. of, oh, is this the way the future's meant to feel? We thought this was going to be better. And it turned out that all these people were kind of real sort of self-serving weirdos. A and he's come to epitomize, just as he epitomized perhaps the best of Silicon Valley at one point, the most utopian. Definitely, definitely. Now, he, now he is, you know, the most sort of dystopian figure. And I think that's the, and that's the crucial second bit, right? which is his whole message. If you listen to that Joe Rogan podcast, it's always the like government, normal politics, it's slow, it's managerial, it's transactional, it's compromise. You know, you'll never figure out LA traffic, you know, unless you just got to get a guy like me, I've got the problem, I've got the solution, I know how to do it, I'm, here you go and it's done. And so the narrative is normal democratic representative politics is a problem. It can't achieve change. It can't fix the problems that you worry about. Do you have depression? Are you in a traffic jam? You know, I'm going to come fix this stuff. Are you worried about this, this yeah. earth? I'm going to take you to Mars. Just put your trust in me. Ultimately, for all the sci-fi trappings, it's just the great man theory of history. That's all it is. Just put your trust in me. I'll make it simple. I'll fix it. And like the moral lesson that you take from this stuff is like, be very fucking wary of anyone that comes along and says, I've got all the solutions, I've got this huge brain, just trust in me. You know, they do not have all the solutions. They do not have a huge brain. And there is absolutely no way to get out from the complication and the really laborious time-taking work that it takes to go through the normal political process because that's how real change takes place. And this brings us right back to Joshua Norman Handelman and Technocracy Incorporated <laughs> and the post-democratic <laughs> tech native North America, doesn't Indeed. it? Indeed, we've come full circle. Thank you for listening to this episode of Origin Story and indeed the whole third season. You can see all of our sources for every episode in the show notes and you can give us feedback via the Patreon page or on Elon Musk's chaotic Twitter at Origin Storycast. <laughs> we could not do all of the research without the support of our Patreon backers. So if that is you, thank you so much. And if it isn't, but you'd like to join up, go to patreon.com slash originstorypod. You'll get advanced episodes, bonus episodes, the occasional Zoom merchandise and early ticket access for live events. And patrons, we're going to be doing a, a sort of debrief on this season two weeks after this episode goes out. So that'll be a live Zoom hangout in the evening. We'll just have a big chat and sort of go through those questions and those issues together. So that'll be two weeks from the date of this, but we'll put a reminder out to patrons through the normal channel. Yes, guys. And we'll see everybody else for season four in the autumn. Cheerio, guys. Origin Story was written and presented by Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt, with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey, and the lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. 
The group editor was Andrew Harrison, with art direction by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production.